condemnation of Putin's invasion has been widespread, from the UN Secretary General, the Pope, and even George W. Bush, who stated, I join the international community in condemning Putin's unprovoked and unjustified invasion of Ukraine. And hold on, George, not from you. You are not the guy for this one, because that statement only would have made sense if it ended with, oh, shit, now I hear it. Sorry, I'll shut the f*** up now. <laughs> From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. It's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Bird and Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today as we try to make sense of it all as we do here on the Bradcast. Glad you could be here uh, with us for it as we do. As we go to air, uh, Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, is still said to be under Heavy bombardment and a line of Russian military vehicles is said to stretch anywhere from 17 to 40 miles, depending on who you hear it from, uh, just outside of the capital city of Kiev. Ukrainians continue to do a masterful uh, moving job of mustering limited resources to hold off the foreign invaders from a belligerent neighboring country, though it's unlikely they will be able to hold off Putin's Russian forces forever from taking over control of Ukraine's major population hubs. Not for lack of trying. No, not for lack of trying valiantly. Uh, But we'll see. Maybe they will be able to continue holding them off. They've held them off so far much longer than... Uh, anyone really expected them to, Desi Doyen. Hi. I know. Hi. But with a 17 or 40 mile long convoy headed their way, it's going to take a long time and a lot of effort. 
To say the least, uh, travel throughout the country, meanwhile, is said to be difficult at best, but those who have been able to flee are reportedly uh, many of them bottlenecked at Ukraine's border with neighboring Poland to the west. The U.N.'s refugees chief is warning that many more vulnerable people will begin fleeing their homes in Ukraine if Russia's military offensive continues and further urban areas are hit. So much for that peacekeeping mission that uh, Vladimir Putin promised. Then again, he's a liar. Filipino, uh, Phil, uh, I'm sorry, Filippo Grandi told reporters in Geneva on Tuesday that his agency has so far recorded 677,000 people fleeing mm. from Ukraine to neighboring countries, with about half of those currently in Poland. That's a lot of refugees. But frankly, it is still a pretty small slice of Ukraine's population overall of some 41 million people. That's larger than California's population at about 39 million. It's larger than Australia at 38 million. Queues along the border are now reportedly tens of miles long to get out, and some people are having to wait days to cross the border. Many have left their uh, left the traffic jams at the border by, you know, leaving their vehicles entirely to walk dozens of miles to the border. Uh, to the checkpoints there. Grandy said, quote, it is likely that if the military offensive continues and urban centers are hit one after the other, that we will see more and more people with less resources, more vulnerable in every respect. It is a nightmare. U.N. humanitarian coordinator Martin Griffith said shelling and bombing have already damaged water pipes, electricity lines, basic services, he said hundreds of thousands of families are without drinking water now. Meanwhile, the deadly fighting is going both ways as Ukrainians continue to bravely defend themselves. Uh, according to AP on Tuesday, a senior Western intelligence official briefed by multiple intelligence agencies estimated Tuesday that more than 5,000 Russian soldiers have been captured or killed so far and that Ukrainian forces have eliminated significant numbers of Russian aircraft and tanks and some air defenses. Now, of course, uh, take much of what you are hearing from sources on both sides of this matter with the appropriate grains of salt as this moves forward. Uh, not only due to the possibility of exaggerations for propaganda purposes, again, from both sides, but also because of the fog of war. It's very difficult to actually know how many have been killed, uh, at least from sources on the other side of the nations in question. And the nations themselves may have uh, reason to either exaggerate or undercount uh, the casualties they may they may be taking. So the official who spoke with AP reported that uh, Russian forces have increased use of artillery north of Kiev, around the eastern city of Kharkiv and the northern city of Chernihiv uh, and have been using heavier weapons over the past 48 hours. The official also said that Russian forces are bogging down in the Donbass region in the eastern part of the country and the disputed border regions with Russia. Uh, where most Ukrainian forces uh, are said to be concentrated after eight years of fighting Russian-backed separatists there. 
The official spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss the intelligence assessment. Now, whether that is either accurate or might explain the failure of Russia to implement more resources elsewhere in Ukraine to date, if in fact they are bogged down in uh, in the east, in the Donbass region, and that that is slowing down their expected onslaught, well, we don't know. But I have noticed that state-controlled media, Sputnik, one of the outlets, has been issuing uh, war updates. They don't call it war updates. They call it the situation <laughs> In Ukraine or the the military, the special operation in Ukraine, if they refer to it at all, uh, that their notices, their alerts have mostly focused on what they claim to be heavy artillery coming in at them, of course, in the Donbass region, specifically in Donetsk. Uh, one of uh, two regions that Putin declared to be independent uh, republics before then sending in his military to the region under the barely disguised ruse of a so-called peacekeeping mission uh, and concurrently launching an assault on the entire rest of the country. So Russian media could be focused most on that fighting in Donetsk, either because that's actually where the fighting is the heaviest or because they would like to keep up this fiction that their incursion into Ukraine is really only focused on those eastern border regions where they were trying to keep the peace. So, again, grains of salt for all reports on all sides uh, as we go through all of this in the coming days. The overall death tolls from the fighting on all sides, that's unclear at, uh, at this point. But as we had a caller on yesterday's show who asked about uh, the claims being made by uh, Vladimir Putin that his operation is about the denazification of Ukraine... Uh, the caller was asking what truth there is to that claim. I noted that, yes, indeed, there is a faction of ultra-nationalists, yes, neo-Nazis in the country that was part of the fighting against Russian-backed separatists in the Donbass region when hostilities were initially sparked back in 2014, the so-called Azov movement of ultra-nationalists. Uh, they have no political power, really, uh, no seats in the parliament. Their fighters have been made now a part of Ukraine's National Guard, of, of its army. But they certainly don't run the country. They're certainly not uh, in, the, uh, in, in the parliament. And at the same time, to describe Ukraine as a Nazi state, as Russia has been trying to do now for years... It, well, it's absurd, and not only because its president, Vladimir Zelensky, is Jewish and actually lost members to the Nazi family members to the Nazis during World War II, including three of his, I think his uncles or his great uncles were all killed by the Nazis, uh, but also for other reasons. This line of, of, of charge is ridiculous. As Putin has attempted to claim the denazification and his attempts to stop a genocide, as he describes it, of the Russian speaking population in eastern Ukraine, uh, where some 14,000 have been killed in fighting there over the past eight years. That has been a, a very real war. But among the updates that I uh, caught earlier on Tuesday was this, also via AP out of Kiev, the leadership of Ukraine's main Holocaust memorial. 
this is in Kyiv, has asked the International Criminal Court to speak out against Vladimir Putin's false claims of a genocide in separatist regions in eastern Ukraine. In a letter to the ICC, Prosecutor Karim Khan, the Bobby Yar Holocaust Memorial's Academic Council, said that Putin's claim that Ukraine committed genocide, quote, is a lie. The letter asks Khan to make a, quote, legal statement about this so-called genocide. If President Putin wants to denounce genocide, he should reach out to those in the system of international justice, not begin a war against the people of Ukraine under false pretenses, the letter says. Now, Bobby Yar is a ravine in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, where nearly 34,000 Jews were killed within 48 hours. 34,000 Jews killed within 48 hours back in 1941 when the city was under Nazi occupation. The killing was carried out by SS troops along with some local collaborators at the time. The memorial there was inaugurated at a ceremony just last October. It was attended by the leaders of Ukraine and Israel and Germany. So that report came from AP, and then just a few hours later, also from AP, Russian forces fired at the Kiev TV tower and Ukraine's main Holocaust memorial, among other civilian sites targeted Tuesday, according to Ukrainian officials. Ukraine's State Service for Emergency Situations said the strikes on the TV tower, just a couple of miles from central Kyiv and walking distance from numerous apartment buildings, killed five people, left five more wounded. The mayor of Kyiv said an electrical substation powering the tower and, con and a control room on the tower were damaged from the hit by a powerful missile attack on the territory where the Bobby Yar Memorial Complex is located. Uh, that, according to a Facebook post uh, by President Zelensky's office, it is unclear, at least from the reporting that I've seen to date, whether the, the whether the memorial was uh, specifically targeted. But, you know, I don't, perhaps this is what Putin meant by denazification, perhaps removing the evidence, bombing the memorial to those killed by Nazis in World War Two. After Germany similarly launched an unprovoked occupation, maybe that's what uh, Vladimir Putin meant by denazification. Let's make that memory go away. Yeah, remove all evidence of Nazi atrocities while we go about committing some more of them. And pretending it's to fight the Nazis. Right. Uh, just wanted to get that point in. Meanwhile, uh, though, I, Desi, I know you're going to cover some aspects of uh, of the battle regarding Russian oil and gas assets right now amid their uh, attack, uh, their attack on Ukraine and the world condemnation and the sanctions for it. Uh, you're going to cover that in the Green News Report a little bit more later yep. this hour. But local authorities in Switzerland are indicating that the company that ran Nord Stream 2, the pipeline built to bring Russian gas to Germany and was halted last week, that company is now said to be close to bankruptcy. Switzerland's economic minister said on Monday that Nord Stream 2 had dismissed all of the employees at its Zug Switzerland headquarters. 
On Monday, the head of the Zug Regional Government's Economy Department told Swiss, uh, a Swiss TV outlet that, quote, this isn't a mass dismissal. It's a mass dismissal if a company would continue to exist. But in this case, it's a bankruptcy. Yes, and to be clear, well, yeah. it's in Switzerland, located there, but it's wholly owned by Russia. It just operates in Switzerland. And I'm just struck by how fast this happened. Yes. I mean, they, you know, last week said, well, we're stopping the certification. I assume they were stopping it for now, but I guess they're presuming it's going to be stopped for quite a while. And the entire company that was running it is uh, getting out of the business or going bankrupt. The Zug Economy Department told German news agency DPA that Nord Stream 2 has, quote, massive payment difficulties because of sanctions, but that no bankruptcy has yet been registered. The pipeline itself is owned by Russian-controlled gas giant Gazprom with investments from several European companies. The German government moved to halt the pipeline certification last week, and U.S. President Joe Biden then directed his administration to impose sanctions on the operating company. So these sanctions are having an effect. Uh, early on, people said, oh, sanctions aren't effective. They don't get the job done. They, you know, Obviously, they have not stopped uh, the forward push by uh, by Russia just yet. But they are having an effect. They are having an effect on a lot of people, not just in uh, in Russia, by the way. But uh, a lot of Russians are going to be affected by this. And I've you know, I've been thinking since this began, Des, that if this is going to end, uh, it is most likely going to be ended by the Russian people who say they have had enough of this because they are already going through a massive hardship. The uh, central bank in Russia has now been um, sanctioned. People are trying to get their money out, what money they have at this point with the ruble having crashed and the uh, Russian stock market on Monday not even opening. Don't know if it opened on Tuesday or not, uh, but uh, in related-ish news, the International Energy Agency's 31 member, member countries have agreed to release 60 million barrels of oil from their strategic reserves. Half of that comes from the United States. Tuesday's decision by the board of the Paris-based IEA is meant, quote, to send a strong message to oil markets that there will be, quote, no shortfall in supplies after Russia invaded Ukraine. Well, we will see about that. Frankly, we'll see if it makes any difference in the uh, fossil fuel markets at all. Right, because remember, a lot of these people are also speculating Oper on how much the future price of oil will be in coming months. And, you know, big oil opportunists are inflating their prices, whether, you know, yeah. they need to or not, for any reason. Because they can. Wh whether there are real shortages or not. Because they can. You're absolutely right. Uh, U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm said in a statement that President Biden approved a commitment of 30 million barrels and that the U.S. is ready to, quote, take additional measures if needed. Well, here's an additional measure. Why don't we use the Defense Production Act for uh, a number of things at this point to, for example, facilitate a faster move away from fossil fuels? to A, save humanity on this planet, 
As does you also discuss regarding a new U.N. report on uh, on today's Green News report, uh, but also to make it more difficult for fossil fuel producing nations like Russia to hold the world hostage to its military adventurism. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting about this is that in a way. Putin has pretty much just imposed a global carbon tax. Mm. In other words, raising the price of Mm -hmm. oil, raising the price of using oil and getting oil. Mm -hmm. And it would be super ironic if his aggression (laughs) accelerates the shift away from fossil fuels. And, and, and I think it has to, by the way, uh, oh, yeah. a whole bunch of the uh, the funds for, uh, you know, solar and uh, ETF uh, funds on the stock market. Uh, yeah, that are they, trading they for went soaring on Monday. Yeah, they went through the roof as people are saying, yeah, well, I guess this means we really do have to move away from fossil fuels. Yeah. And however it happens, I mean, it's not surprising that an oil shock would push that. And of course, there are two ways that we can really actually help Ukraine. The first one is in the short term, you can use less fossil energy and that'll course will help everybody because then if it's higher prices you'll save yourself some money too Mm -hmm. by not using so much fossil energy where you can help it and long term by accelerating the shift away from fossil fuels just exactly as you say so that we can stop giving petrostate dictators Mm -hmm. control over our economies Exactly right. Uh, let's let our own petrostate uh, dictators no. here stop in the petrostate uh, dictators oh, stop completely. Okay. Stop it entirely. <laughs> Homegrown oh. renewable energy that nobody can take away from you. Russia, in fact, plays a huge role in global energy markets. No matter what, they are the third largest oil uh, and gas producer, I believe. Oil prices uh, soared on Tuesday again. Benchmark uh, crude surpassed a hundred dollars a barrel. That's the highest price since twenty. 2014. Oh, 2014. Look, that was the last time that Russia sparked hostilities in Ukraine. Bingo. When they took over Crimea and backed a long and and deadly separatist war in the Donbass region of Ukraine. A Russian government representative. This is an amazing story to me, actually. Uh, This comes from uh, Politico. Uh, A Russian government representative apologized to Ukraine and said there was no justification for his country's invasion during a meeting of climate scientists and governments on Sunday morning. Wow. This was uh, during the final session of a two-week online meeting to approve the the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Changes, uh, the IPCC's latest blockbuster climate report, which Des will discuss again in the uh, GNR. But during this final session, uh, the head of Moscow's delegation, Oleg uh, Anisimov, Oleg Anisimov said in Russian, quote, first of all, let me thank Ukraine and present an apology on behalf of all Russians who were not able to prevent this conflict. All of those who know what is happening fail to find any justification for this attack against Ukraine. The uh, Ukrainian delegation uh, on this was forced to quit the meeting last Thursday when Russian troops invaded the country with the head of the delegation telling Politico that her colleagues had to seek refuge in bomb shelters at that point. It was later reported that she returned to the meeting for the final session. The uh, the Russian Anisimov 
applauded the Ukrainian efforts to participate until it was no longer possible, saying, quote, since we are dealing with scientific issues, we have huge admiration for the Ukrainian delegation that was able to still do its work. The IPCC uh, went on to approve the final version of the report on Sunday. It is the deepest investigation yet, nearly 4,000 pages long, into the impacts of climate change around the world. Uh, it was released on Monday uh, when we discussed it a little bit on this show, and Desi will have more shortly. But I think the remarks from the Russian government scientists, frankly, are extraordinary here. I, and I hope that he still has his job today. Uh, frankly, I hope he's still alive today. Yes. Uh, but his remarks that, quote, all of those who know what is happening fail to find any justification for this attack against Ukraine. Uh, you know, I had cited an email to bradcast at bradblog.com on yesterday's program from a longtime progressive listener uh, and Brad blog reader, and, and we spent some time discussing it on that show as it was critical of the U.S. and NATO actions, charging that their actions helped instigate Russia's latest war on Ukraine. And while the U.S. and NATO have done some things that I, too, am troubled about in, uh, you know, in the region over the years, as we've discussed on this show, none of it as the emailer had charged, justified her claim that, quote, by insisting on their right to join NATO, Ukraine has brought upon itself the worst possible outcome. Now, as I noted, I've known the emailer in question for a long time. I like her and you know, know her to be a very good person and a good progressive, uh, not, for example, a right-wing troll or even a member of what I sometimes refer to as the sort of Glenn Greenwald-led left-wing contrarian industrial complex. But I was troubled by the misplaced accusation that Ukraine had brought this upon itself and compared that to the appalling charge made by some that, oh, a, a woman who got raped brought it upon herself because she was wearing a short skirt or something like that. So in a similar vein, I saw this metaphor over the weekend that does seem kind of apt and or helpful in understanding the current Russia-Ukraine relationship disaster. Uh, this was posted by someone at Facebook from uh, somewhere or from someone else. It's, it's apparently anonymous, making the rounds on, on social media. We were unable to identify the original author of this thing. But in any event, it's short and it's sweet and provides an easily grasp graspable metaphor, I think, to help understand and explain the Russia-Ukraine conflict, I think. Uh, at least as, as the author of this short explanation sees it and as I have come to understand it. Uh, here's how this goes. The Ukraine and Russia crisis, in simple terms for those that have no idea what is going on. Ukraine used to be in an abusive relationship with Russia, feeding him, letting him use her car and giving him whatever he asked for until she built up the confidence to call it quits back in 1991. Since then, Ukraine has been 
working on herself, becoming a more strong, independent woman with help from friends like France, America, Poland, etc., offering her support, loaning her money, and helping her find her way. Ukraine has been enjoying being single for 30 years and looking forward to continuing to grow and create new friendships. But now Russia, being the toxic ex that it is, wants her back and doesn't want her meeting new people or creating any new relationships. A couple of weeks ago, Russia started sitting in front of Ukraine's house. And when her friends asked him what he was doing there, he said, oh, nothing, just getting a little bit of exercise, that's all. After her friends told her that Russia was potentially getting ready to do something bad to her, he said, no, they're lying. They just want you to be scared of me. That's not what this is. Well, yesterday, Russia broke into Ukraine's house, beat her up, and taking advantage of her while on live stream and double-dog daring any of her friends to do something about it. I don't think that's an entirely inappropriate analogy, frankly. I don't either. Uh, even if you do not agree with all of Ukraine's behavior in this matter with Russia, she wants nothing to do with him at this point. And like a belligerent, violent, abusive, deadly boyfriend, he refuses to leave her alone. But again, you know, I stand in favor of Ukraine here, at least at this hour, as Russia assaults a neighboring sovereign peaceful country that po that deposed zero threat to Russia. Attacking civilians. I don't think it's a particularly brave stance to make, but I feel like I have to repeat it. Uh, particularly, you know, it's not a, a, a difficult or brave stance for a longtime opponent of wars and military aggression. But it is interesting to see that there are some still on the left, as we discussed yesterday, who, who still see this very differently. So I guess I do need to repeat it. And I'll repeat the tweet that I uh, sent out over the weekend, which sort of summarizes yesterday's argument on the show, because I think it's it's critical. I had tweeted, let me make this easy for my friends on the left. No matter your critiques of U.S. and NATO, we have shared them. If you are against war, you must oppose Putin's war on Ukraine. If you oppose U.S. aggression, you must also oppose Russian aggression. This is an easy call. I think it is. Now, if Russia ends their shelling, their attack, their murder, their war crimes and withdraws troops, well, we can go back to focusing historical blame where it may be appropriate in hopes of finding a permanent and peaceful solution to this crisis. But sadly, this is not that time. This is not the time for that, at least as I see it. Now is the time to oppose war, to oppose aggression, to stand up to fascist, authoritarian, anti-democracy forces, wherever they may be, including, yes, back here at home. As I also noted yesterday, if there was ever anything that everyone in this nation, right and left, Democrats and Republicans, so-called conservatives and progressives, if there was anything that we should be able to come together about, this seems like a no-brainer. This assault on Ukraine should be it. 
period. It's an easy call. So I get it, sort of, coming from the desperate authoritarian Trump MAGA right. Uh, I have a much harder time understanding it uh, from the theoretically anti-war left, even as I believe, or at least I hope, that it's a very small segment of the left who would blame Ukraine for the war crimes and the atrocities that Russia is now uh, uh, bringing, raining down on them. So... Need to get that out of my... Apparently, that's still in my system. Apparently, <laughs> I still need to get it out. All right. Uh, anyway, that's where we are for now. As we go to air, let's take a quick break here and a, a quick break from overseas war coverage to return to some of our own democracy-related nightmares, sort of exactly what I'm talking about here uh, on the right, uh, some th happening here in our own backyard as the uh, the fight to protect and indeed save democracy continues here at home, even as the assault on democracy rages out of control overseas at the moment. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to the Bradcast, and good on you for it. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. On Civil War, on Civil War, how long must we fight this uncivil war? Good question. Same old wounds. I can't believe we're still fighting it, uh, even while there's a real war going on overseas, uh, that we're still back here at home with this idiocy. We, uh, we, we, uh, we're just a few hours away right now as we go to air from uh, oh, welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman <laughs> from bradblog.com. Uh, just a few hours away now uh, as we go to air from uh, Joe Biden's first official State of the Union address. He gave one that looked a whole lot like one last year, but they don't actually call it that in a president's first year. We will have, of course, special coverage of that State of the Union address on our next broadcast, I believe, with our old friends uh, Heather Digby Parton. And R.J. Esco? Yes, Richard Esco of the Zero Hour. <clears throat> yes. Uh, so if there's anything at all to discuss, if there's anything at all that Joe Biden has to discuss in his uh, State of the Union, I don't know where he's going to come up with anything to talk about. <laughs> there's so little going on. Yeah. I have a feeling it may be a long one, by the way. Uh, just a few important matters to discuss. In any event, uh, by way of sort of a preview of what we might expect in response to Biden's address from the right wing of the Republican Party, which includes most of the Republican Party at this point. It has been taken over by the right wing. Uh, over the weekend, Republicans held their so-called Conservative Political Ac Action Conference, the CPAC. They held it down in Florida. They used to hold it in D.C. They held it down in Florida, I guess, so that their disgraced, twice-impeached former president you know, wouldn't have to travel so far to show up and lie to them in their uh, key in his keynote address. Uh, and for those for whom the extreme right wing CPAC is not quite extreme enough, the America First Political Action Conference was also held over the weekend. It's, it was organized by white nationalist Nick Fuentes 
featuring Georgia's Congress uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene as, I believe, the keynote speaker, the keynote white nationalist speaker, I guess. Uh, last year, it was Arizona's white nationalist Congressman Paul Gosar who spoke, though I think he was there again this year. He had such a good time last year. Here's how Fuentes opened the conference before, just before introducing Marjorie Taylor Greene, just in case you think I am exaggerating by describing this as a white nationalist group. And you want to know the secret, uh, to borrow a phrase from a friend of mine, our secret sauce here, it's these young white men. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we call the secret ingredient. America and the world has forgotten about them, but not us. You know, they say about America, they say, diversity is our strength, you know. And I look at China, and I look at Russia, who, can we give a round of applause for Russia? Yes. And he goes on to say, uh, yes, uh, Putin, let's hear it for Putin. I, that was this past weekend. That was as Putin is attacking a sovereign nation of Ukraine. Yep. So, no, I'm not exaggerating when I say this is a white supremacist, white nationalist nationalist conference that you would think, while we know that, you know, they exist in this country, you would think that an elected member of Congress would stay as far away as possible from such a gathering. But no, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene was right there, right after those comments, giving her address. Even after describing the group's secret sauce as young white men and chanting and cheering for Putin. As Russian forces were bombing Ukraine, incredibly enough, Marjorie Taylor Greene still came up and gave her remarks to the young white men in that crowd. Well, Utah's Republican Senator Mitt Romney was asked about all of this on Sunday on CNN. And to his credit, uh, he did not mince words in his response. I want to talk about something that Congresswoman Liz Cheney tweeted uh, yesterday about sitting Republican House members appearing at a white nationalist gathering. She said, quote, as Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar speak at this white supremacist, anti-Semitic, pro-Putin event, silence by Republican Party leaders is deafening and enabling. All Americans should renounce this garbage and reject the Putin wing of the GOP now. Do you agree? Absolutely. Uh, Liz Cheney was right with that statement, and she's been right for a long time. And I also saw uh, that, uh, that Ronna McDaniel came out with a statement as well. Uh, uh, talking about how repugnant these white nationalists are. Look, there's no place in, in either political party uh, for this white nationalism or racism. It's simply wrong. Evil uh, it's, it's, uh, as, as you've indicated, speaking of evil, uh, it's evil as well. And, uh, and, and you know, I, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, I don't know them, but I'm reminded of that old line from the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid movie where, where one character says, morons, I've got morons on my team. And I have to think anybody that would sit down with white nationalists and speak at their conference was certainly missing a few IQ points. And just more broadly, the pro-Putin sentiment that you are seeing from some corners of your party. 
Well, a lot of those people are, are changing their stripes as they're seeing uh, the, uh, the response of the world and the political response here in the U.S. But how anybody, how anybody in this country which loves freedom can side with Vladimir Putin, which is an oppressor, a dictator. He kills people. Uh, he, 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 he imprisons his political opponents. Uh, he has been an adversary of America at every uh, chance he's had. It's unthinkable to be. It's it's almost treasonous, and uh, and it it just makes me ill uh, to see some of these people do that. But of course they do it because they think it's shock value and it's going to get them more eyeballs and maybe make a little more money for them or their network. Uh, it's uh, it's disgusting, and I'm 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 hopeful that you're seeing some of those people recognize just how wrong they were. Yeah, well, some of those people. Yeah, never, never mind his uh, his attempt there. At by the way, at trying to both sides. At no place in either political party for white nationalism. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. Hey, I don't... hey, Mitt, you might not notice this, but I think they're all in your party, yeah, the Republican yeah, Party, right now. Kinda. Those white nationalists. Yeah, and 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 trying to. Well, some of them are. They're changing their stripes. Well, I hope so. Uh, but, you know, if some of those people that he refers to that are changing their stripes, if that includes Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who hopes to be Speaker of the of the U.S. House after this year's midterm elections, well, Romney's hopes may be for naught. Here was Republican House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy on the House floor. I think this was Tuesday, correct? Yes, House Minority Leader Republican. Oh, did I already call him the House Majority Leader? You're <laughs> I think right. You did, but I anyway, did. but he's the Minority he's Leader. He's the Minority right Leader, now. correct? And uh, here he is on the uh, House floor on Tuesday, giving his remarks on what he hoped to hear from President Biden in his State of the Union address with those remarks uh, by McCarthy then immediately rebutted by Democratic Congressman Jim McGovern of Massachusetts. I'll be watching. I think America will be watching. Will we stand for America and for freedom? Would we stand for President Zelensky, who didn't take the advice of President Biden and leave his country? who doesn't ask for men and women from America to come to fight. He just asks to provide some weapons so they can defend against Putin. The sad part about that, Mr. Speaker, every day that we allow crude or natural gas to come from Russia, American money is going to Putin. Let's stop that and stop that today. With that, I yield back. Yeah, Mr. Speaker, the world is watching. And I'm not going to uh, be lectured by someone who takes their marching orders from Donald Trump, who said that Putin's invasion of Ukraine was a genius and savvy move. Uh, I'd like to, I wish the gentleman would have condemned that. And listening to that speech, you would think that Joe Biden invaded Ukraine. I mean, he spent all this time criticizing uh, Joe Biden, John Kerry, um, and everybody else, but hardly criticized Vladimir Putin. I also wish, because I think it would be helpful uh, for this country and, and a signal to the world, if the gentleman who just spoke would reprimand members of his own party who cozy up to white nationalists um, and, pro, and go to pro-Putin rallies. That would send a signal to people in this country and to people around the world on whose side we're on. Bottom line is, 
the people of Ukraine are being invaded by a brutal dictator, Vladimir Putin. And when their standard bearer, Donald Trump, was in charge, he spread propaganda about Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election, which was a lie. He ousted a well-regarded U.S. ambassador to Ukraine because they weren't doing what he wanted to in terms of finding dirt on his political opponents. Froze military assistance to Ukraine. They said nothing. That was Congressman Jim McGovern responding to Kevin McCarthy there, who I, you know, I couldn't tell from that clip, but I mean, did he, it sort of sounded like he was blaming Zelensky for not leaving the country, for staying there and and and, and defending himself and I, asking for arms to I defend think he himself. was subtly blaming Biden for all you're offering him is a ride. You're not offering him enough. But, you know, obviously, what does he want to offer him? Troops? Does he want to start World War Three? Exactly. They don't actually have any solutions. All they have are ways to try to bash Biden and say, hey, we need to increase oil and gas uh, drilling here in the United States, which, of course, will have zero effect on gas prices for several years. But, you know, we'll get to that at the Green but, News Report. Yeah, so. and uh, they're, of course, they're using that to say we need more oil and gas. If there was anything, as I said, that you would think would bring this nation together, for Christ's sake, it would be this. But apparently not. So if Mitt Romney is hoping uh, some of those people are going to change their stripes, uh, again, hope, uh, well... We will see uh, if that happens. It doesn't appear to be. Also, in addition to the State of the Union on Tuesday, it's also Election Day in the great state of Texas. The first midterm primaries uh, of the 2022 cycle. And as we discussed last week with Grace Shemaine, president of the League of Women Voters of Texas on this show, the GOP controlled state's new voting restrictions have been seriously undermining the ability for voters to have their vote-by-mail ballots counted at all. With enormous rejection rates leading up to our uh, conversation with Shemaine last week and rejection rates that it appears have continued right up until Tuesday's Election Day, sadly enough. Thousands of Texas, uh, Texas ballots will be rejected unless voters take an extra step to correct them. Election officials warned on the eve of Tuesday's primary. The statewide election is the first test of new ID requirements for voters who cast their ballots by mail. That's part of the voter suppression package that Texas state Democratic legislators fought like hell against for many weeks last year charging that uh, this would be the exact result. County's figures indicate many legitimate voter ballots continue to be rejected by county officials under this new restrictive law. Among other changes to the state law, voters are now required to include some form of ID, like a driver's license number or the last four digits of, the social, of their Social Security number, on their mail-in ballot applications and on the envelope that they use to return the completed mail ballots. But the problem is the number that you include on your application or your ballot has to be the exact same number that you included on your voter registration, which for many may have been done decades ago. So they either don't remember what number they used when they registered to vote decades ago 
or their driver's license number may have changed since then or in many cases uh you know before there was a requirement to include any such numbers there may actually be no number at all tied to their voter record those voters are essentially screwed so even if you provide if you vote by uh mail and you provide your correct social security number for example which the county can actually verify and verify your identity that way by the way yeah and if they but if, if you used a driver's license number when you registered to vote 30 years ago and you didn't specify that number on your ballot, your ballot will be rejected by county officials under this new state law, which is disgusting and purposely meant to be suppressive, as passed by uh, Texas Republicans last year. So in Harris County, that's Houston, a Democratic stronghold, a Uh, Almost a full third of all absentee ballots, 29 percent of mail ballots received so far have been flagged for rejection as of this past weekend, according to data from uh, from the county office. Harris is the largest county in the state. It's home to more than four million voters. But election officials across the state have been busy calling and emailing voters as if they don't have enough to do. If they and if they have contact information for those voters or they've been mailing them back to alert them to these issues. But, of course, it's too late to mail them back to the voters to have them correct it and get it back. So time is running out for, well, really most everyone to make changes to cure any of these deficient ballots under this new terrible law. Most of the voters, most voters must have fixed their ballot deficiencies by the end of voting on Tuesday. Some will still be able to make changes in person at county election offices through March 7. If the errors were discovered near the end of the early voting period, uh, as I understand it, they'll have to go in and do it in person, which is not necessarily easy for a lot of these, you know, Texas absentee voters since Only those who are ill or out of the county or are over 65 years of age or even allowed to vote by mail in Texas in the first place under the state's already restrictive rules for absentee voting. In Travis County, uh, 12% of ballots have been rejected, 26% of ballots in El Paso County. Back in 2018, just to give you an idea of how much of this is solely to do with the new law. There were just 1% of absentee ballots rejected statewide, largely due to missing signatures that the voter forgot to include. So this is very bad, but there still is a chance uh, for voters to correct this problem. Just wanted to get it out there. um, And I, I suspect we'll be returning to it soon enough. Texas has found no actual uh, uh, voter fraud of note in their state, and they are doing this anyway on purpose. We'll have any noteworthy results or other news out of Texas also on tomorrow's broadcast, presumably. But if you vote by mail there, you may want to check with your county ASAP to make sure your ballot was actually tabulated. Quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. 
Time for chit chat. Let's get right to it. Our latest green news report. We want to take every step to maximize the impact and the consequences on President Putin while minimizing the impact on the American people and the global community. Western countries escalate sanctions against Russia, but not on Russia's energy exports. Today's IPCC report is a necklace of human suffering and a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. Dire new UN assessment warns we are running out of time to adapt to climate change impacts. Plus, the U.S. Supreme Court hears challenge to EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. All of those challenging stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Schultz announced that the Germans would suspend its certification of the Russia to Germany Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline, which means Germany's going to have to rely on their own source of natural gas eating sauerkraut. It's all part of their new patriotic campaign. Beat Putin, get Tootin'. This is your Green News Report. What? That's not dignified enough for you? Grow up. Okay, Desi Doyen, Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine is going to have Uh, A lot of knock-on effects all around the world, particularly when it comes to climate. Indeed it will. The international community is implementing increasingly severe, crippling economic sanctions against Russia in retaliation for Putin's unjustified and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Big European oil companies are moving to distance themselves from Russia. BP will offload its 20% stake in the Kremlin-owned oil company Rosneft, probably at a steep loss. Norway's national oil company Equinor also cut ties with Rosneft. Shell Oil will exit all of its joint ventures with state-owned Gazprom, including the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But so far, we've heard nothing from U.S. oil majors like ExxonMobil. Well... Are you surprised? Nope. In the U.S., Republicans and the American Petroleum Institute are using the crisis to pressure the Biden administration to weaken regulations and expand drilling on public lands, Mm. which, to be clear, would not increase supply or lower prices for several years. Well, no crisis too tragic for the American Petroleum Institute to exploit. Yep. As we go to air, the U.S. has not sanctioned Russia's fossil fuel exports, which indirectly fund the Russian invasion. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said on ABC Sunday that energy sanctions are still on the table, but President Biden is trying to minimize the impact of rising prices on the American people and the global market, which in turn could undermine the West's unity against Russia. What this actually justifies in President Biden's view is the fact that we need to reduce our dependence on foreign oil, on oil in general, and need to and we need to look at other ways of having energy in our country and others. Also underscoring the need to transition away from fossil fuels, on Monday, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its newest assessment of global climate science. I bet it wasn't good. No, it was not. UN scientists warned that climate impacts are here, are worse than predicted, and could soon overwhelm the ability 
totality of both nature and humanity's best efforts to adapt, driving poverty, hunger, disease, water shortages, and species extinction. Some impacts, they say, are already irreversible. Mm. The scientists say that if warming is not slowed, these effects will multiply and get even more dangerous over the next 18 years. They also warn that governments are moving too slowly to cut their emissions and make the kinds of transformational investments needed to build resilience and adaptive capacity now before worse impacts unfold that in turn could make it even harder to cope. Well, you know, none of this is a problem as long as you don't pay attention to it. Well, they do say that poor nations who did not cause the climate crisis are far more exposed to climate risks than rich countries. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres called the report an atlas of suffering, accusing the world's biggest polluters of arson. With fact upon fact, this report reveals how people and the planet are getting clobbered by climate change. The facts are undeniable. This abdication of leadership is criminal. The world's biggest polluters are guilty of arson on our only home. Guilty of arson on our only home. Ironically, the dire IPCC report dropped on the same day that the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a lawsuit brought by the coal state of West Virginia challenging a defunct Obama-era emissions regulation that never took effect as a pretext to ask the court to strip the EPA of its authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions at all. And they just might do it. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. We are still celebrating our 13th anniversary of the Green News Report, and thank those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. It's the of the world as we know it I feel fine It's also the end of the show as we know it and I gotta get out. My thanks to our producer Desi Doyen to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com On the Facebooks and the Twitters I am simply the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here tomorrow with our special State of the Union coverage. Hope you'll join us for that. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. It's-